Welcome back to Blazing Trails. I'm Michael Rebo from Salesforce Studios. Today, I'm joined by my podcast partner, Rachel Levin. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Hey, Michael. Good to be here. I want to talk about a show that's part of our Salesforce podcast network of shows, and I'm sure is very special to you. It's called IT Visionaries. Whoa, Michael, visionaries. You know, my ears perk up every time I hear that word. Tell me about this podcast and what you love about it. Well, we do have visionaries from the world of IT. These are trailblazing leaders from companies like Slack, Stitch Fix, Dropbox, and many others. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, I love that episode with Stitch Fix and where you learn about how those algorithms are created and manage to deliver, you know, the goods that everybody's waiting for each month to be able to step out and look good. <laughs> You know, when we can wear clothes again and go out to the office. That's right. So when you subscribe to IT Visionaries, you'll get two weekly episodes. Each one is packed with value, stories, and trends, all directly from leaders on the front lines of technological innovation. So you're going to learn things like how Dropbox created a true remote work experience, how Slack builds communications tools for the remote worker, and how companies like Automation Anywhere are using millions of data points to automate the workflow of millions of employees. So tune in to IT Visionaries. It's the number one tech podcast for CIOs, CTOs, and CISOs with over 300 episodes, more than a million downloads, and thousands of minutes of insights. IT Visionaries is your source for actionable insights, lessons learned, and exclusive interviews with top decision makers from the C-suite. So subscribe to IT Visionaries on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, Michael, let's talk about our episode today. I really love this conversation that you had with Frank Cooper, the CMO of BlackRock, and John Fee, who runs global marketing for Salesforce.org. What were the highlights for you? Yeah, it's interesting connecting those two. You know, Frank has had such an interesting career. The guy has done it all. He's worked as a senior executive for Motown and Def Jam and served as the chief marketing officer of PepsiCo Global Beverages and BuzzFeed, and then made this move into financial services working at BlackRock and has really brought this idea of being a purpose-driven company to BlackRock and made some big changes there. Impressive. And one of the key ideas is around this idea of connecting wealth and well-being and giving more meaning than just the accumulation of money or material things and really opening up that idea. So we'll hear more about that in our conversation today. Yes, exactly. So without further ado, let's listen in on your conversation with Frank Cooper, CMO of BlackRock, and John Fee, the CMO of Salesforce.org. Welcome to the show, Frank and John. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having me. Okay, perfect. Frank, I want to start with you. You've been instrumental in driving change at BlackRock to put forward the idea of being a purpose-driven company and putting that into action. You know, as I prepped for the interview, I was not sure what that actually means around being a purpose-driven company. Can you set that up and explain that a little for us? Yeah, I mean, look, there's so many buzzwords floating around right now. It's uh, easy for all of us, including myself, to get lost in it. I mean, you know, there's conversations about mission-driven companies, purpose-driven companies, stakeholder capitalism, CSR. But it, for me, it comes down to this. There has been a growing realization among a wide range of people. That ranges from employees to members of communities to citizens to NGOs that business has to play a role in making society better. In fact, I would define business in a very simple way. It's to improve life and lives. That's what it's designed to do. Otherwise, what are are we doing? And this realization, though, has changed people's expectations. And so the expectation is you will contribute something positive to society. And so 
purpose simply has been this movement from uh, companies doing benevolence on the side, which is philanthropy, mm-hmm. to thinking about cause marketing, which we saw a lot of in, in, in the 60s, to thinking about CSR or corporate social responsibility, which is addressing the externalities of the company, to pulling it to the core of what the company is about. Mm-hmm. At the core of the company, having its ultimate goal as doing something positive for society. That's the movement that is happening. And what I'm seeing is that more employees are expecting it, more communities are expecting it. And the companies that actually do it well, do it in a way that it's not profits versus purpose. It is their purpose is driving profits. And to put that in action, you have to take it through the entire company from strategy to innovation to brand and marketing, to your social impact work, to the DEI work. It should all flow from your purpose statement. Great. Frank, tell me about the journey in helping lead this effort at BlackRock. I mean, this is new for financial services. This is maybe a different way to think and different from where you had been in other parts of your career. Tell me a little bit about the experience at BlackRock and moving this purpose-driven idea forward. Sure. And look, and I was very fortunate early in my own career to have someone prod me, push me into finding my own purpose. We didn't use that term at the time, but he basically said, if you want to have a sense of fulfillment in your work, find out what you are passionate about, what you love to do, find out what you're good at, and then couple that with your career. Otherwise, the two will start to separate over time. And I was just very fortunate by a lucky set of circumstances to have that interaction and then to go through that process myself. And so as I went through my own career, at Motown and Def Jam and PepsiCo and BuzzFeed, I always thought about it through that lens of purpose. So when I land at, at BlackRock, and, and John knows this because uh, John was there with me, and, and um, in my earliest conversations, actually, Larry Fink and I, our chairman and CEO, we started talking about purpose. And um, I was telling him why I thought uh, you know, purpose was increasingly going to be the thing that would separate the great companies from those that were simply good. And we riffed on that literally for hours over several weeks. But as I dug into it, the good thing about BlackRock is that it was hyper-focused on its mission, and its mission was defined as giving clients a better financial future. It was purely focused on clients, and it, and that makes sense because we have a fiduciary duty to our clients. So it became this process of starting to getting more people to open the aperture so that they could see that what was possible for BlackRock was actually bigger than clients and bigger than prospective clients. At the same time, we started getting pressure externally. Mm-hmm. You know, we started to see protests. People were saying, you know, how you allocate assets actually affects our world. It affects human lives beyond your clients. So the combination of those two things, the external pressure, opening the aperture, but most importantly was this. It was getting people to dig back into what was actually real about BlackRock from the very beginning. And we did hundreds of interviews. We interviewed the founders. We interviewed uh, vendors. We interviewed employees on all levels across all regions um, in all functions. And getting them to tell the stories, the peak moments at BlackRock. When did you feel the best? When did you go home and and, and tell a friend or family member about something amazing that happened? And you started to see these themes pop up. Mm -hmm. And through that process, we actually discovered our purpose. And, and, and I use that word intentionally. We, we discovered it because we it was not an invention. It was finding the thing that was always true about BlackRock, but looking at it through the lens of how it contributes uh, to society. Frank, thank you. for uh, You just took me back memory lane. I think back to 2017 to some really, really progressive 
and great memories of, of my time at BlackRock. And similar to that, and I was in the camp of let's do this. And mostly because at that time in 2017, similar to what we're seeing today with, you know, and Frank, you mentioned this, there's a lot of buzzwords swarming around, you know, corporate purpose was on the rise. Sustainability was everywhere. More products in the ESG space were being created. Folks started talking about values create value. And I too was thinking, hey, it's a good thing. It means that doing good is gaining in popularity. When there's a lot of buzzwords surfacing in headlines, that means it's trending. It's becoming fashionable. It means more and more people are getting comfortable talking about something. And you could feel that back in 2017. Mm -hmm. But truth be told, it was always on trend. But then and even now, it's just pushing on leaders even more into what you said, Frank, for those leaders to rethink corporate models and business strategy. Mm -hmm. But today, you can visualize corporations, the conscious of societies around the world, the conscious of the planet, and you can visualize corporate culture like flowing together, like these tributaries all uniting into a river. And the confluence of these three separate entities, it's creating this new corporate narrative that's almost an imperative these days for leaders focused on purpose and actually winning the war on talent. And that, to me, is incredibly inspiring. More than any other point in my career to see corporates and conscience and culture are all coming together to create a better planet. And, it, and it's, it's pushing new heights in what we can do. And you're seeing new products being created on the back of this. You're seeing corporations no longer just you know, refreshing their values on their website, but actually, actually like listening to their employees, like Frank mentioned that BlackRock did to drive change from the inside out. And I think we're witnessing something that's going to set us off on the right path for, you know, decades to come. I got to say this, um, you know, whenever you do these kinds of things, whenever you're trying to break new boundaries, you need a small group of people who align with you and understand intuitively um, what you're trying to do, believe in it, and become part of the movement. You don't need a whole bunch of people, but you need a small group of people that really drive that. And John was that early on. It reminds me, Frank, of a story I heard you tell about jogging in the 60s and 70s. At that time, there were just a few people on the fringe who were into running. And then Nike turned jogging and exercise into a lifestyle and a huge industry. Talk to me about how that happens. How do companies create such cultural shifts? Yeah, you know, I love the fitness movement example because right now it seems so intuitive. You know, we see people running down the street and no one does a double take. It's like, of course you're running down the street. And I, should, I should be running right behind you because, you know, uh, we should all be, all be doing this. This clothes associated with it, style, all that. But it is true. If you rewind back, it was a strange thing. People um, didn't uh, uh, think about exercising in that way. And it was Nike, but it's also the government. You know, they used to give out these patches, the U.S. presidential patch for those who would uh, um, do physical ed uh, in school. Um, but it's crazy. You would never do it today. But what struck me about it was that no one said we should have fitness literacy. Like, let me tell you about fitness and teach you about fitness in that way. It wasn't about that. It was things like, having a, a relatable role model. You saw people who were doing exercise that you could relate to. That was important. It was actually making it safe to try, giving you things that you could do. Anybody could do. Anyone could actually put on some sneakers and jog around the block. It was allowing you to learn by doing. Um, and so you get into it. You know, the Nike Just Do It logo was so powerful and so on point 
because you can actually learn by doing. And then having a community of people that actually support you. It's the same thing. If you take that same logic, and it really is kind of the, the principles of self-efficacy, you know, is kind of the more the academic term around it. But you say take those same principles and you apply it to complex areas like financial services. You then bring it down to a human level that actually allows people to relate to it and engage in it and learn and to progress no matter where they stand. And so that's been my hope. And just so no one's confused, I am not in any way dissing financial literacy. You know, I think financial literacy is a great thing. What I also know, though, is that by itself, if you just isolate it, it changes behavior by 0.1%. It doesn't do anything. So it has to be coupled with those other things so you can bring it down to a human level and people could actually get engaged with it and take steps forward and it builds momentum and it becomes more emotional. Right. And I think, you know, that's, I've heard you express it in this powerful idea around connecting wealth and well-being. And so much of wealth is just your money or what you can buy or your material experience. But when we think about it, how connected that is to our entire, the well-being of our entire life and what that means. Tell me a little bit more about that idea. And I'm one of the people who, who thought about it that way, you know, who, who uh, like, hey, you know what? I know about the, the, the fitness movement. I know about uh, nutrition. Uh, I know about mindfulness. I know about relationships. That's what well-being is. And, 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 and wow, it's an amazing thing. And money is just something you collect so that you can facilitate that. And I thought about that um, most of my life. And, uh, and, but coming, coming into BlackRock forced me to think more deeply about it. And the realization was, wow, money is a source of anxiety and stress for most people. Money is the thing that actually causes tension. Even those with lots of money, billionaires, still don't necessarily have a healthy relationship with money. And uh, it seems like there's an opportunity for us all to think about how do we have a healthier relationship with money so that it actually feeds into our overall sense of well-being. And so what I've been trying to do is, is to reignite this notion of financial well-being, not wellness, you know, not, not like a checklist of things that you do to get on the financial path, but how do you have a healthy relationship with money across the full spectrum, how you earn your money? We, we talk about that a lot. And people um, associate that with their identity, how you mm -hmm. spend it. Let me tell you, uh, um, and, and, and I know this firsthand too, people with no money are, are experts at spending. And they can, tell, they can tell us a thing or two right now that would uh, uh, help us understand how to spend better. How do you borrow it? How do you save it? How do you invest it? How do you give it? You need to really look at that full spectrum, no matter where you are in the financial services ecosystem, because that is the holistic view of, of financial well-being. And I think we all have, any of us in financial services, we have a responsibility to help others become more in tune with how to navigate across that spectrum. John, I'm curious about how companies can think about well-being with their employees. Tell me a little bit more about what it means at Salesforce and with Salesforce.org, how that fits in. Yeah, the secret sauce at Salesforce is the people, but more importantly, how those people around the world, I mean, you know, nearly 60,000 employees are unified with a, a common culture, corporate culture. And um, I often like to simplify is culture as the things that everyone likes to say, they like to say that, you know, they like to say it. And it's the things that everyone likes to do. And um, one thing that about the culture at Salesforce that still just absolutely inspires me today is that all of these employees around the world, part of the employee experience is to 
get out of your home, be safe, put the laptop down and go volunteer. Mm-hmm. And um, volunteerism has risen to become this thing that we all like to talk about that's unique to all of us. You know, we all don't go volunteer at the same place. And it's, it's the thing that we all like to do. And last year, our collective efforts through the pandemic, which made it really difficult for folks to do some of the volunteering they would have done in the past. But even through that, and using COVID safe guidelines, all the employees at Salesforce were able to volunteer 800,000 hours. Just think about that. Mm-hmm. 800,000 hours. That's employees saying, I'm going to go volunteer at a school. I'm going to go help clean out a library out of school because they can't afford librarians anymore right now. I'm going to go teach an art class because I love art and I studied art and now I'm a, a systems admin, but I'm going to go give my time to that. I'm going to go and help be an advisor to this nonprofit organization and help them think about distribution and applying maybe some for-profit business tactics and strategies to their nonprofit to help them scale. Uh, I'm going to go chop up onions at a, at a local food bank. I personally, I spend a lot of time at beaches in, in Northern California with my kids, with Home Depot buckets and gloves and grabbers, picking up trash. And for all of us, that common bond of the experience of, of this unified volunteerism is it's gratifying. You feel like you're, you're not talking about change, not saying things should be better. It's, it's doing, and it's, it's actually walking the walk. Yeah, and it reminds me, Frank, you recently wrote in the Harvard Business Review about how companies have to put in a sustained effort to being purpose-driven. You know, it can't be a a one-off. And over this past year of crisis, we've seen lots of companies trying to respond, some more effectively than others. How can companies set up for success and do this in an authentic way? At Salesforce, it is a big part of who we are. But for a new company starting or companies trying to move in this direction, how do you approach that? First, let me say, I, I love watching what Salesforce does in this area. And, you know, when Salesforce does something, it does it big. You know, I'm from San Francisco originally, and, and, and I remember the first time I came back one time, and it was the Dreamforce in San Francisco. I had no idea what was happening. All I knew was that there was a takeover of uh, downtown San Francisco, and, and it was big. And applying that to philanthropy and, and social impact has had huge consequences, and I think we'll continue to have it. Um, but it also shows that proximity matters, you know, that getting close to the people that you want to serve matters a lot. So what we were saying, uh, Professor Ranjay Gulati and I, he's a Harvard Business School professor, and we wrote this article, is that we have an opportunity, businesses, to direct our philanthropic efforts in a way that is consistent with our purpose. And that if companies do that, they can sustain that philanthropic action for longer periods of time. Uh, number one. Number two, everyone knows that uh, the larger you are as a corporation, the more requests you're going to get. And so how do you get out of the first come, first serve approach to philanthropy? Um, again, we think turning to your purpose and using that as a compass for where you should invest your social impact dollars is the way to proceed. And so what we have tried to do, even at BlackRock, if our purpose is to help more and more people experience financial well-being, how can we do that across a spectrum of people that we may not serve? And so we started an emergency savings initiative. You know, we're supporting generations and, and um, we partnered with Robinhood on helping local NGOs led by people of color. And so, but all that flows from that sense of how do we help more and more people experience financial well-being? 
And so I think there's an opportunity for us to do that because what you don't want is that when times get tight and people look at this as just a kind of a generic sense of benevolence. And by the way, there's a, there's a role, a role for that too, a humanitarian crisis. We should all respond and the corporations should respond. Mm -hmm. But the thing you want to sustain are things that flow from your sense of purpose as a company. That's right. Mm -hmm. So there's some specificity around that is helpful. Exactly. Yeah, I think even at Salesforce, where there are so many opportunities to volunteer and to be a part of that, it's still hard to find what it is to do. And part of what's great about the setup at Salesforce is how open it is. John, this is a question for you between having it be very open-ended and having the company be more prescriptive. It's the question that you raised about it being difficult to, you know, to do this to be completely transparent, like when Salesforce first started to say, hey, all employees have the ability to volunteer for X number of hours uh, a year, and there's going to be the ability for employees to make a donation and, and there'll be some matching, corporate matching and all this kind of stuff. So the impact is even bigger. It'll be 2x of what they're doing, you know, to a certain dollar amount. That's fine. You know, you can say that and you can get going on that. But what we experienced here at, at Salesforce was it got really hard. And, and the reason for that is, by about 2017, 2018, you know, volunteerism and em employee giving, it started to become like the beating heart of, of our experience of the, of the corporate culture. And that data not really streamlined into a, a workflow to make it terribly efficient. And so I often say, like, God, it's funny how so much employee goodwill can end up creating a good problem. And that problem that we had here at Salesforce was, how do we scale this? You know, and this is at the time we had what seventeen thousand employees, and you know we have close to sixty thousand employees now, and and so it was through that challenge that we said, okay, let's do what we do with uh, obsessing over data and organizing data and finding out how to get the most out of data and visualizing that data, and let's create a product. Let's put all of our CRM knowledge around this challenge and reimagine that workflow and. Through that, we created a product that's you know now in the market, and a lot of uh, companies are using it across all different industries called Philanthropy Cloud. Yeah, and I got to say, I, I think that's a brilliant platform in some respects, but this is why I didn't name it. It should be called Philanthropy Light because um, it shed light on what I think is the truth, right? Which is, yes, you should have a collective company view of what's the most important thing that flows from your purpose. But also, people want to be individuals. People want agency to be individuals, but they want communion to be part of something bigger than themselves. And that's just true of, of everything. And I think it's true of philanthropy. But you need an infrastructure that can manage all, all of this. And that's why I think philanthropy cloud has been so successful, um, because it allows you to accommodate both things. The highly individualistic, this is what I have passion about, I want to do, give them an opportunity to do that, but still plug into the larger infrastructure of the company. Um, I think it's absolutely brilliant. And it speaks to this idea of connecting people and machines, which, Frank, you've talked about, you know, creating these cultural moments by connecting humans and machines. Can you tell us a little more about that, you know, maybe from some other times in your career? First, I, I, sh I should start with, with an admission, which is, um, you know, I'm, I'm obsessed with this thing. So, like, you know, I've, I've watched The Matrix <laughs> times, literally, you know, ex machina. <laughs> I watched that over and over. So it's kind of a slight obsession. That's part of what's, what's driving it. But in all honesty, the thing that I worry about the most is that we sometimes allow technology to lead the solution rather than start with our own sense of humanity to drive the technology. And so for me, I think we should constantly flip this on its head. I'm great with any elegant uh, uh, code. 
great, nice. I'm great with any um, hardware that expands our capability. That's great. But what are we trying to accomplish as human beings? And so for me, the mantra should be human to the power of machines, you know, that how can machines help us accomplish things that we want to accomplish? And so I put the ethical questions first. I put the questions of what outcomes do we really want for us as human beings? And when you look at it through that context, suddenly the, the fuzzies, you know, uh, the, uh, the liberal arts people become critically important partners in the development of technology. You know, you need the techies, but you need the fuzzies um, because the two together will allow us to advance in a way that expands the potential of people that is aware of potential uh, of bias that um, prevents a negative, disproportionately negative impact on certain parts of the population. If you don't do it, what we are seeing is that you will not only reinforce some negative outcomes, you will actually accelerate it. And so I think this for me is one of the most important shifts that we have to make. And my hope is that uh, we see tech companies hire more liberal arts students and, and put them in positions of power uh, right alongside the technically proficient and great uh, engineers uh, that exist in the company. We've done that certainly, and it was before my time actually, Larry Fink and others basically said, hey, we need to bring more liberal arts students in because the questions that we're trying to solve are not purely technical questions. These are human questions. And this may be a little outside of your day-to-day, but where do you think we are mm. in this? If zero is we're not thinking about the ethical considerations at all, and a hundred is we are you know, fully aligned with that, where do you think we are in this process right now? We're in the 20s, I would say, at best. <laughs> yeah. At best. Um, and here's, here's why I say that, um, because here's what it takes to, to actually fully get there. One, you need critical mass on both sides. You need the actual physical numbers there. Uh, two, you need diversity of people. That's right. Um, you need uh, uh, Black, Indigenous, people of color, women, so that you have a check on, on potential bias. Uh, three, you need a system that allows for this to work in practice. A lot of people think that uh, you know, once you get uh, a diverse group together and, you, and then you talk about uh, being inclusive, everything goes swimmingly well after that point. It doesn't work that way. Actually, diversity creates greater tension. And so now you need manager capability to manage that tension so that you can find common ground. But most importantly, you need people to actually understand that it's important, that it's critical, that this is the outcome that we all want. And, and that is not a sideshow, it's not an, an ancillary activity, it's core to it. So I think we have a long way to go, but I'm an optimist. I'm encouraged by at least the conversations I'm hearing about it. I'm encouraged by the direction um, we're headed. Again, like John was saying, I don't think this will be linear either. Um, but you know, the good thing about nonlinear behavior, it looks really slow in the beginning. But once it kicks in, you know, it, it, uh, it, it accelerates pretty rapidly. So I'm optimistic about it. You mentioned this. It's uh, in, in financial services. You find a lot of left-brain thinkers. They're very analytical. They're very logical. They're very verbal. You know, and and that's just because of a lot of left brains hiring left brains and on and on and on. But recognizing that the path forward, whether it's creating new products, solutions, whatever it may be, is also going to require some right-brain thinkers at the table. You need that emotional thinker at the table, that creative thinker at the table, that visual thinker at the table. And I think that's something that's often missed in a lot of the discussions of the power of diversity in the boardroom or wherever you're at. It's you got to make sure you're operating with whole brain with your team, that you've got whole brain. We talk a lot about bringing whole self to work, but when you are in that problem solving, let's take this challenge down, let's find a solution, you got to look around the room 
And you got to think about the brains around the table. And, you know, more often than not today, when you see the things that humans are doing and your mind is being blown, SpaceX, by example, that was both left brain and right brain working in harmony and saying, why not? What if this way? What if that way? And um, I think more and more advancements that'll drive industries, whether it's you know tech with Salesforce or financial services and asset management for BlackRock, it'll be because of the, 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 those two brains coming together, both sides of the brains coming together. Frank, when it comes to diversity, what are the touchstones that can really move things forward? It's a great question because I've spent the last three months um, we're thinking about writing an article, but talking to diverse employees across all industries uh, with the sole purpose of understanding what, what their experience was like. And uh, it's fascinating to hear the commonalities in it. But then we asked the question at the end, so can you name a company that you think has gotten it right? And not perfect. You know, you know, we're not looking for perfection, but that's really from a diverse employee's perspective. That you feel like, hey, they've gotten it right. The answer is, is universal. It's shocking to me, actually. Um, universally, people are like, hmm, you know, that's interesting. Um, let me get back to you on it. And then they never get back to me on it because, if, uh, or they say, like, I can't think of one. And here's why I think, because, and you're right, we've been at this a long time. Uh, companies that are well-intentioned, that have every ounce of them saying, I'm committed to making this change, it still hasn't happened. And I think it's because we're missing one piece of it. It's always been about diversity, trying to increase the numbers at the beginning, Inclusion, trying to create a sense of belonging, but the equity piece was the piece that was missing. And the equity piece is basically saying, get the numbers up. That's necessary. Yes, sense of belonging, I think that's an output of it. But give people what they actually need in order to unlock their true potential. And that could be very different for different people and different groups. There's a great cartoon that I've seen that actually expresses this the best. There's a race going on on the other side of, of a fence, and there are three people looking on the other side of the fence, right? And so one, they're each on a pedestal. All the pedestals are the same size, but the people are at different heights. So two people step on the pedestal, they can see over, and they're telling everyone about the race, and it's like it's a great race. The third person can't see over the fence, but that might be the person. That might be the person who could tell you the most, give you the most insight about that race. But mm -hmm. you didn't give that person what they need in order to unlock their potential. And I think this equity piece, we're at the early stages of it, is the most critical aspect of it. It's going to be diversity and equity before inclusion. And, and so I think that's my hope of what will be an unlock into a whole new era for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the equity piece, how does that manifest itself? I was just going to add, there's a lot of companies that are doing good work to drive change. But that gold standard, my gut tells me, is probably a startup that just started this year. And in the coming years, that'll be the brand where we're like, they got it right from day one, and that's now the model. And they didn't have to correct anything that they did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, because mm -hmm. that's what we're seeing all the household brands that we all know. They're, they're in that correction mode. And um, you got to move fast there because you know the, the world at large is losing patience for the speed that which large brands are correcting. But my gut tells me that that company that Frank wants to hear about is probably was just founded this year, and we'll we'll hear about them in, in the future, and that will become the gold standard. I hope the future is now. If you guys, if you if anyone <laughs> hears about it, please let me know because I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm anxious to, to celebrate it and elevate it and, and shine the light on it because uh, I think you're right, John. That's going to guide us forward. Me too. 
That was Frank Cooper, the third CMO of BlackRock, with John Fee, who runs global marketing for Salesforce.org. Thanks for listening today. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Michael Rebo with Salesforce Studios.